Pray with me, if you would, please. Lord, thank you so much for the blessing of this time in your word. I pray you would do profound and ridiculously awesome things on this communion Sunday. Speak to us profoundly. Let us hear you and know you and love you so much. Let your word burst open and come alive. Lord, the obvious assumption is that we will be overwhelmed by all of this information. Give us supernatural ability. Lord, stretch our supernatural stomachs to be able to grab a hold of what we need to today. And in that, Lord, I just pray that your living water would wash over every part of us. Clean us, purify us, prepare us for every good work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. We're going to search a lot of them today. Let me give you an overview. And I just in prayer, I realized, you know, our, our family leaves for a couple of weeks. My our oldest daughter is graduating in uh, Tennessee. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we actually finished the book of Deuteronomy? And then what would happen is when we come back, we will begin the book of Matthew. That would be so fun. In light of the fact you've all, we have actually then recorded the entire Torah being taught so we could refer to it. So let me kind of give you an overview on what you can expect. Uh, chapters 21 through 26, in essence, are law nuggets. I mean, there are just a whole bunch of these kind of, I don't want to say random because they're certainly not random, but specifically little pieces of specific statements made. And let's think of this time as sort of taking a shower where you can't drink the shower, but as we're going through this, let the water reach every part of us so that we could be clean like we should be. So that's 21 through 26. 27 and 28 will be then uh, God preparing them for this major event that's going to set up between two mountains, the um, Mount Ibel and Gerizim, where they talk about the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. And chapters 29 and 30, God speaks about what happens when the Israel knowing that they will not obey they're rebuking but God always rebukes listen please God always rebukes to restore there's the point chapters 31 and 32 Joshua is inaugurated and Moses sings sounds already like it should be a musical and then finally in chapters 33 and 34 Moses gives his final blessing and Moses dies so just like a really good opera Moses sings and dies at the end of it Uh, So with that in mind, here it is. I'm going to ask you to try to remember six words with me. They all begin with the letter C. And to help that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let this side take the first three and this side take the the second second. And don't contentious and competent work of the flesh. We don't want that to be the case. I don't want you all to be quiet about it. So here are your three. Ready? The first of the three, care. Care, consideration, and the camp. Those are your three. So try that with me. Care consideration, and the camp. Now, let me hear you. Now, there's one of me. Granted, I got a mic. There's a whole lot of you. Ready? What is it? Beautiful. Care, consideration, and the camp. Now, yours. Now, I'm going to look at one. Commitment, consistency, and conclusion. Commitment, consistency, and conclusion. What are your three? Commitment, consistency. Can you be consistently up with me? Come on, here we go. Ready? Commitment, consistency, conclusion. Beautiful. So here we go. Your three are care, consideration, the camp. Yours, commitment, consistency, and conclusion. Are you with me on that? Well, then let's jump in. Chapter 21, we begin with which word? Care. Beautiful. Nicely done. Care is how we start this. And the important thing on this is the point, God points it up as saying every person is important. Every human being is important. 
Now, before we even go into it, do this. Flip to chapter 26 for a moment so we can see the conclusion of it so we know what we're getting to. In chapter 26, verse 16, are you there? So even if you're new to the Bible, if you got to Deuteronomy, you can get there. 26.16 says this. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes, these judgments. That's, by the way, what we're about to look at. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and all your soul. Today, you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that you should keep his commandments and that he will set you, hear me, high above all the nations which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people, notice not just holy from, but holy to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. God says, if you're willing to obey, I'm willing to lift. If you are willing to obey me, I'm going to lay this thing out. And as you're willing to obey me in this, I'm willing to pitch you above the storm. I'm willing to put you above the enemy. I'm willing to put you above your problems. Now, that doesn't mean that storms won't come. Jesus made clear in Matthew chapter 7 that the storms came to both houses. The one that was built on the sand and the one that was built on the rock. The variable was not the storm. We don't come to Christ because we assume Christ is a storm-proof program. It is actually a survive the storm program. The difference in there was not that the winds blew because they blew on both. The rains fell on both. The floods came on both. But the house stood that was built on the rock. And there's the difference. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying, listen, if you're willing to follow me, and I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me so much that when I say this is what I'm looking for, follow me on it. That if you follow me, I'll put you above all of that. It tells us, by the way, that the moment we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were seated, not with, but in Christ, in the heavenly places. He tells us that in Ephesians 2. What's fun is, if you go back to Ephesians 1, it tells us where Jesus is. It tells us that he is enthroned in glory at the right hand of the Father, listen, above every principality, power, might, dominion, and anything that could be named. Anything that could be named. If you can name it, it's below him. There's the idea. And the point is, is that Jesus, if you will, is sitting large and in charge. And you're not sitting near him. You're sitting in him. The spiritual battle will always be stay in Christ, because when you stay in Christ, you stay on top. And that's what God tells us at the end of this. So as we walk through those, what are those three again? Care, consideration, and the camp. And commitment, consistency, and conclusion. And the conclusion ultimately is, I'll lift you up. That's where we're going in this. Are you ready to follow me now? Okay, here we go. Chapter 21. Look at what it says. And we won't be able to read every verse, but I want to be able to get clear on it. And by the way, I will trust that you will read this on your own to check me. So, verses, verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. If a man is found or anyone is found slain, lying in the field, in the land in which the Lord your God has given you to possess it, and you don't know who killed him, then the elders of your and your judges shall go out and measure the distance between the slain man and the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the nearest city of the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked, which is not pulled with a yoke. And the elders of the city shall bring that heifer down to a valley that flows with water, which is neither plowed nor sown. And they shall break the heifer's neck in the valley. Then the priest, the son of Levi, shall come, the sons of Levi, shall come near 
For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And the elders of the camp nearest the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people. And atonement shall be provided for them on behalf of the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, and you do as right in the sight of the Lord. The point, of course, here is that we should be free from innocent blood. We should not be guilty from innocent blood. So here it is in layman's terms, if you will. You find a dead guy in a valley. You measure to find out what city it's closest to and they're going to be responsible for him. Now, you don't know the guy, apparently. Because if you knew the guy, you'd be able to claim him for your city already. So in essence, he's a relatively unknown man or woman. But there's a body in a valley. So they measure. And what the point is, is that nobody is not cared for. Even a dead person here is going to get a proper burial. So what happens is the cities measure, and it's like, I don't know if you were one of those kind of people that you didn't want to be responsible, you'd roll them over more towards the other. But the point is, is that sooner or later you measure and you say, okay, our city's, our city's responsible for them. And then you do something weird. You, take a, you don't just take a cow, but you take a specific kind of cow. And the cow that you take has never bred, has never been worked. Oh, all that potential. Well, it won't have that potential anymore, will it? So that that had so much potential... The future in that cow could have, bought, could have bred a thousand cows. Um, well, that's an exaggeration. Could have bred many cows. Could have provided much milk. Could have provided much meat. Won't be doing that either. Could have pulled so many yokes. Well, now it's over. And as that thing is broken, it tells us then <clears throat> that you have to do it in a specific field. What do we know about this field? Well, it's the same thing. I don't know if you noticed. It's never been plowed. It's never been seeded. And just like the cow, you look and you go, look at the potential of the field. It could have brought forth so much fruit. It could have borne forth so much fruit, but it doesn't now. Do you get it? See, God wants us to look at a person that we wouldn't have known. A man or a woman lying in a field and think the potential that is lost because of this individual now. Oh, the fruit they could have borne. The people they could have touched. The children they could have brought forth. Oh, but not now. The potential's over. And God wants us to realize that every human being is important. Interesting, because he also puts two little side notes in this. One is that the priests are the ones responsible for solving all of the disputes. Did you notice that? You understand this is the foundation for why Paul writes. And I'll refer to the New Testament a great deal because this is where they draw these things from. It is where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 about a carnal church, a fleshly, worldly church. And one of the symptoms is that they sue each other. He says Christians should never sue each other. Never. He says, do you realize, don't you have godly, wise men you can bring this to? And what's he referring to? He's referring to this. Because the idea is it's the priests that are supposed to solve the dispute. They seek the Lord for that answer. Oh, but there's another thing. Do you remember what these elders, do you tell me what did these elders have to do above that cow? You tell me, what does it say? What do they have to do? Yes, they have to wash their hands. Why? Because they want to say, by washing their hands, what they're saying is, I am innocent of this man's blood. 
I'm innocent of this man's blood. Why is that so important? Well, Matthew 27, verse 24 makes it clear when a Roman shames the Jewish people because they want to kill Jesus. And do you remember what he does? He calls for a bowl and washes, which is a Jewish, as we see here, a Jewish standard. And he washes his hands in front of them. And remember what he says? He says, I am innocent of this, this righteous man's blood. You realize what he could pull that from? Right here. Second text of our thing, <clears throat> verses 10 through 14, is about a slave wife. The idea of it's simple, and I'll start summing, but please don't just believe me. When you go to war and you see a gal and she's fine and you want to marry her, you can marry her, but first she needs to shave her head, cut her nails, and mourn her family for a month. It's a big change for her. Then she can be your wife. Now you think this is a bit strange, and it's certainly outside of our culture, but please recognize something. Imagine the idea here that God put no boundaries on who could marry a slave girl. It wasn't like a commoner could marry a slave girl and that was it. A king could marry a slave girl. And that is so far out of so many cultures. I mean, even here, royalty must marry royalty. Why is that so important? Because Paul again refers to this in Romans chapter 7 when he says, you've become dead to the law that you would be married to another. We as slaves, Jesus tells us whoever sins is a slave to sin. We were slaves, but God wanted us anyways. And as God wanted us anyways, we could be betrothed to the king of the universe. Is that amazing? And God set that standard here, and that's why we don't just jump past it. Verses 15 to 17. And again, remind you, this is all under the context of what word? Care. Do you get it? Does that make sense so far? Dead person, care. Slave girl, care. Well, here's another. Look at the difference between verses 15 to 17 and 18 to 21. 15 to 17, it's the firstborn. And here's the idea. You have, you have, if you have two wives, God never condoned polygamy. Because if you do, when you love one and you don't love the other, and the one you don't love has the oldest boy, he still has to be your firstborn. Interesting, by the way, you're probably aware of the fact that that you can refer back to Jacob who got kind of the bait and switch with his first wife, Leah. By chapter 37, it's very evident that God, I'm sorry, that Jacob has made the oldest son of his favorite wife, his firstborn, even though he's number 11 in the chain. And God says, you do not do that. Listen, every child is cared for. Every child is loved. You get the care there. We have two children. One is biological. One is adopted. I love both of them the most. That's the way that works. It's interesting because when God looks down at this woman, with Jacob, two wives, the first wife, by the way, Leah, we read in Rachel, that's the one he seems to really favor, she's beautiful in face and form. God knows how a man surmises a gal in the flesh, looks at her face, looks at her shape, and says she's the one. All we read about Leah is she had weak eyes. We're not even really sure what that means, whether she squinted or whether, you know, all we know is obviously she didn't measure up to her younger sister. But she's the one who's fruitful. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, she births six of them. The first child that's born, she says, see a son. Now, now my husband will love me. Reuben means see a son. Second son, God has heard my cries. Surely my husband will love me. Shimon, he has heard. 
third child. Now my husband will be attached to me. I've given him three boys. Levi means attached. Fourth son, now my husband will praise me. He hasn't praised her after three children. hasn't gone attached after three. Fourth child, now he will praise me. And the Jewish word or Hebrew word for praise is Judah. You know the most beautiful thing? Though she was never loved like she could have been by Jacob, she was loved by God. So much so that when God chose for the lineage of his Messiah, he went with Leah. He's like, I know what you really want is for the one you love to be attached to you. God's like, I know how you feel, but I'm attached to you and I want you to be attached to me. I'm going to bring forth my son through you. Well, on the other side of it, verses 18 to 21, we have a rebel son. And the idea is simple. If this boy is come nuts on you. Notice in verse 20, it says, you bring him to the outside. And you say, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice, but he's a glutton and a drunkard. He's not just somebody who won't like go to bed on time or won't brush his teeth. He's somebody that's out of control. He's brought out of the city and he's stoned. Understand, that may sound harsh, but God knows how to prevent. I don't know how many of you have seen the riots that have taken place in Baltimore. I don't know how many of you have seen the mother of that one boy that was wearing the mask. Of all the children that may riot again, I kind of get a feeling that one ain't. And that, that woman made really clear she was displeased with her son's set of choices. Now, God is not saying here that what you should do is just kill everyone. But I guarantee you, if I as a child looked at this and realized this was the penalty for being a drunkard and a glutton, not just somebody who had a problem, but somebody that was like, I'm going to do my own thing, God's like, there is no room for that. And understand that in the body of Christ, God makes a similar call. He says, this isn't about everybody doing whatever they want. We all submit to the living God. It is fundamental. And if we don't, we are only going to damage each other. And there's the idea. Finally, in the, in the end of this, by the way, you'll, you'll see that that's the very thing he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, when he says, by the way, that there are certain kinds of lifestyles. If you make sin your lifestyle, those are people who don't inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. He also tells us, by the way, in 2 Timothy 3, 2, that such an attitude is actually tendency to prove the end times. Finally, in the chapter, verses 22 and 23, notice those. We'll read those. It tells us, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, he shall be put to death. You hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain on the tree overnight, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land in which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. He who was hanged is accursed by God. That should sound familiar. This is why Jesus had to, be, die, had to die on a cross. Because if our God would send his son to be our curse, and we have deserved the curse, then he would have to pay the price of the curse. And for that to happen, he would have to die on a tree. And that's exactly what Paul refers to in Galatians 3.13. He quotes this verse. He says, Jesus has become the curse for us so that the curse could be properly punished. You go, well, how does that play out for care? Well, it plays out perfectly for care, doesn't it? Here's the way care looks. 
Here it looks like nobody is left behind. That means the individual left in the streets or whatever or left out in the valley, you care for that individual. That is fundamental. You make sure that you know that. For the slave girl, she is cared for. Nobody is, can be without love. The firstborn, by the way, that could be favored else against, you make sure he's loved like he should be. The rebel son, you love everybody else enough to care about your witness. So you know that you don't just let people run off to their own demise. You let them know there are consequences to their actions. And by the way, those consequences would wind up on the cross so that my God could pay for your sins and mine. My question is, have you accepted the gift of Jesus? What it proves is he cares for you. Moving on. Are you ready to explode? We're on the second of them. First, chapter 22. We go from care to what's our second word? Beautiful. Consideration. And the idea now is we're going to be considerate of others. If we're going to love each other, we're going to have to be considerate. This is what it says, by the way. Look at verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. No hide and seek with their animals. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. If your brother's not near you, take care of him. Hold him until he comes and gets it. Verse 3. You shall do the same with his donkey. Even his garment, if it's lost, or any other lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you have found, do likewise. You must not hide yourself. If you see your brother's donkey or his ox fall along the road, don't just hide yourself from that. Help him. And then he says this right in the middle of it. Look at verse 5. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garments, for such are an abomination to the Lord your God. And then he goes to a bird's nest. Is that the weirdest version? Do you think God has ADD? I don't think so. So we have a point here. He goes from don't hide yourself from somebody else's stuff. Make sure you give it back to if something is in need or in, of care that you are considered enough to care for it to this cross dressing issue to verses six and seven. that say if you find a bird's nest, do not eat the eggs in front of the mother. I think that that's fairly kind, don't you? And the idea is simple. Be considerate enough to care for others and Others' stuff. But that includes, by the way, caring enough to not blur lines that God made solid. Actually, God has, and this is going to be so anti-cultural, we're aware of that, but God has a very clear definition for a man and a woman. Now, that's not mean. I don't know about you, but when I don't know my role, I get more confused and I get more exhausted. Knowing my role really helps me. And understand, God never gives authority without responsibility. And he never gives responsibility without authority. And to each, he's given authority. And to each, he's given responsibility unique to their gender. And he doesn't want you being confused about that. We get to the point now where a kid is six in a, in a public school, and we're already trying to get them to the point where they have no kind of gender issues. They, like they're not going to consider who they are at all. But they're so confused. They're like, what if I'm a lesbian trapped in a man's body and it gets to that but what if you're just a man and you should rise up and try to be, take responsibility for it there's the idea first eight's a simple verse when you build a house that has a second story put a parapet up does anyone know what a parapet is a parapet is not i mean i can think of you but it verses one through seven it's someone else's pet and now you have a parapet a parapet's a little wall that you put up at the end of your of your roof so nobody falls off by accident. And the idea is be careful enough, care enough, so that you're not going to put something as a hazard in the way of someone else. 
And Paul would say it this way. Don't put an object of stumbling in front of someone else. And he uses it in the area of convictions. And hear me on this for a moment. Because if we're going to be considerate, it's the fundamental. It plays into all of this. So understand what a conviction is. A conviction is not a law by God universal for every Christian. A conviction is a personal wall set up or fence set up for you to protect you from something that may be a weakness to you. So that's why our convictions differ, because we may have different weaknesses. For some, for instance, I grew up in a very violent environment. I stay away from I didn't watch the fight last night. It probably shouldn't surprise you. It isn't like I'm like, oh, man, so beautiful. Watch that guy punch that other. It doesn't do great things to me. There are others who have problems in the area of lust. Well, certainly there are certain areas you should stay away from. I get that. Some have in the area of insecurity. And certainly, like, I know some gals that are insecure in such a way that if they watch something that looks like it focuses on a pretty girl, they get really bent out because they feel like they'll never, they'll never be that, is the idea. But it feeds a very negative part. And see, understand, when we go before the Lord and we say, Lord, what convictions do you want to give me? Real friends will honor those. That's the fundament. Real friends will honor those. They won't go, well, that's not mine. Well, of course it's not yours. But he says it this way in, in regards to the book of Romans again, Paul speaking. That there are two tendencies, and this is a loose paraphrase. There are those who are going to have a lot of convictions, and those who are going to have lesser convictions. And the tendency of those with a lot of convictions is that they tend to condemn the others. Those with lesser convictions tend to look at the others with contempt. Oh, stupid people. Like, look at them. They're like legalists. And it's like, they may not be legalists at all. They're just trying to stay safe. And the end of this is, let both of you be fully convinced in each other's minds and resolve not to put a stumbling block in each other's way. If you live with roommates versus living alone, uh, you know, and I suggest, especially if they're all Christians, sit down with them and say, what are your convictions because we should, in the house, resort to the highest common denominator. Because I don't want to stumble you. If you don't watch those kind of movies, they're not watched in the house. That doesn't mean it's my conviction. I just don't want to trip you up. I don't want you coming home and watching and going, oh, look it. What are your convictions on alcohol? I mean, if it's the law, it's the law. But there is a conviction. In our house, we're completely dry. And one of the reasons is because we reach out to so many people who are coming out of the addiction of alcohol, the last thing I'd want is for you to show up at my house and stumble. It is that important. But whatever those convictions are, your real friends aren't going to roll their eyes when you tell them. They're going to go, hey, if that's a fence to keep you safe, why would I want to drag you into harm? Does that make sense? And there's the area of consideration. Hey, so, okay, so, and by the way, that may be in regards to your identity. That may be in regards to your stuff. That was what we talked about with the animals or in the way that you dress. But in the end of it all, the idea of it is, is that I don't want to stumble you in any of these areas. That's the point. And again, we go from care to consideration. Doesn't that, isn't that a proper growth? If I genuinely care for you, I will be genuinely considerate for you. And then he says this in verses 9 through 12. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed. Oh, that's weird. We don't, what? Lest it yield the seed which is sown and the fruit of the vineyard be defiled. Don't plow an ox and a donkey together. Don't wear a garment of different sorts. Oh, does this mean God hates polyester? And then he says, and make tassels on the four corners of your clothing to which to cover yourself. Now, obviously, there's a very cultural aspect to this. But notice what happens. In the first case, you want to make sure when you walk into a field, you know what you're going to get. 
you know what fruit's going to grow there. A vineyard grows. Now, by the way, you're aware that many vineyards, they do grow things on the outskirts to flavor the wine. It does flavor the wine. I get that. But you don't want to confuse people. A vineyard's a vineyard. Plowing an ox and a donkey together is unfair for the one that's the weaker one. We read it this way in 2 Corinthians, to not be unequally yoked. Because what's going to happen is it's not just a strong and a weak. It's that two are going in opposite directions. This is why Christians should never, and this is not, by the way, conviction. This is law according to Scripture. Christians should never date unbelievers. That's what the Bible says. I mean, you go, wow, is that hardcore? Yeah, no less hardcore than this stuff he's going out with. And the idea is simple. And it's, listen, it all boils down to all of these things. He goes down to the last one where he says you put these tassels. These tassels showed your allegiance. And there's the point. It's one fruit. It's one work. It's one worth. And then it's one allegiance. And I don't want, the idea of this is I belong to God. If you want to come walk with me, I'm walking with God because I belong to him. I'm not going to sow half of my heart into you when you're running away from God and then say that God has the other half. It doesn't work like that. My heart doesn't beat that way. So please understand, when he starts to lay this out, the idea is simple. If I'm going to be considerate, I need to be all in. I remember them showing, listen, forgive me for this analogy if this sort of loses you, but I'll try to go quick on it. Surfing is a really important place to commit. Now, I mean, there's a point where what happens, you're sitting on this stick of, in essence, a fiberglass sponge board. And it's going to hold you up. The bigger we get, the more struggle it's going to have. The more thrust you need. But you start feeling this thing rise behind you. And there's a point where this wave starts coming up. This thing starts lifting up. And as it lifts up, there's a point where what happens is that wave, what call it, it breaks. It's no longer just a swell, but it starts to crest. At that point... You better be, uh, you better be below that point. Because if not, that crest is going to pitch you. It's going to throw you, in some cases, as far as 30 meters. And often, because it's sucking water from where you're going to land, you could land on some really hard thing. And then just as you land on like the razor sharp coral, by the way, of Hawaii, where it's so nice and waka waka, and then the wave goes, like that. And you're like, what? And just as you try to catch your breath, then the next wave, and it's like 30 tons of water. And the whole point is this. You're paddling and you're like, do I take this wave or not? Do I take this wave or not? And then if you'd say no, well then get back and don't let that wave take you any farther. But once you get there, it gets to a point where you gotta commit. Cause if you don't gotta, if you don't commit, you're not gonna hurt yourself alone. You're gonna hurt yourself and anyone else who knows you and anyone else who's near you. And understand, when the Lord died for us, He never did anything but commit. He committed before the foundation of the world. There was never a question in His mind. And if I want to be really considerate to you, one of the most considerate things I can be is committed to Jesus. Because if I'm really committed to Jesus, then you don't have to try to figure out who in the world I am today. There's no spiritual bipolarness here. The bottom line is, I'm committed. And if there's hardship, I'm committed in the hardship. If it's good times, I'm going to be committed in the good times. If we're going to have a challenge in our relationship, I'll be committed in that challenge. If we're going to be just enjoying each other, I'm going to be committed in that. Because the bottom line is, you deserve a person consistent. And there's the whole idea. What am I sowing to the field? Am I sowing grapes here, but sowing thorns here? Is that what I'm doing? Is that what I'm trying to do? Am I trying to actually put two things to work that actually don't belong together? Is that what I'm trying to do? 
Am I trying to dress in ways that you kind of go, well, part of it's this way, but part of it's that way? Obviously, much of our identity is in what we wear. So am I one person here and one person at home? Well, you can ask my children and find out from them. They'll tell you the truth. I mean, I try not to play perfect here because you should know better. God doesn't call perfect people. It's not about perfection. It's about pursuit, right? The good news is that means you all qualify. So our first chapter was care, right? And the idea of it is that everyone's important. The second chapter is consideration. And the greatest consideration is be fully committed. And that's why the rest of the chapter, by the way, plays into the area of marriage. That would make sense. What greater place for a commitment? And the idea is simple. If a guy marries a girl, by the way, and then he tries to play off as if she wasn't a virgin and he's proven that she actually was, they beat him in front of everyone else and he still has to keep her. So he's going to lose every way he goes there. If a guy actually kind of, the idea is if there's of adultery, it is a capital offense. Rape is a capital offense. Nobody rapes twice. They get caught, they die, it's over. God takes it that seriously, ladies, men, and both of them shall die. That's what verse 22 says, which is important, of course, when you get to John chapter 8, and a woman is thrown before Jesus, and we read that she was caught in the very act of adultery. It's clearly a setup, because if it wasn't a setup, the question I always ask is, where's the man? If both of them are to be killed, why is only one of them there? So, care, consideration, third, the camp. For care, care for every human being. For consideration, he considered enough to commit. Are you following me? Now here's the camp. And the camp, it sure is good to be on the inside. There it is. So here's the way the, the chapter kind of works. There are certain people not allowed in the assembly. And by the way, some of this stuff, it's almost better. I don't read it, but it's like he was emasculated by crushing or mutilation. I understand a person that does that has sworn allegiance to another god. It isn't like he was accidentally, something accidentally dropped on that particular part of their body. Illegitimate birth, Ammonites and Moabites. What do they all have in common? They are swearing allegiance to another God. And he says they don't belong in the camp. And you're like, well, how do we reach out to such an individual? You reach out to them to the point where they're willing to come with you. But not to the point where you have to go follow them into their God. It is amazing how many people tell you or will tell me, oh, this is a ministry. I know that the, all they do is they go clubbing, so I better go clubbing with them. I know that all they do is hang out at the strip clubs. I should go to a strip club with them. Hey, look at Jesus went to questionable places, but he never left his holiness behind. So don't tell me for a moment you running off to sin is somehow ministry. We know better. So that's not what's in the assembly. Look at verses 9 through 14. He says, let me tell you a couple other things. If a guy kind of has something happen in the middle of the night, he's out for the day, washes, he comes back in the evening. Verse 13, well, something else should happen outside the camp, your poop. Just grab a shovel or an implement and dig it and leave it in the outside of the camp. And he tells us why in verse 14, because the Lord your God walks in the camp. He walks in the midst of it. Find another God that's willing to walk among you. My God wants to be with us. Do you have the same one? He wants to walk among us to deliver and to give our enemies over to us. Therefore, the camp will be holy. Let no unclean thing be among you. There's the, po- there, there's the point. To turn away from you. Look at where God should be, should be as clean as you can make it. 
as clean as you can make it. We like God's the one who cleans. Yes, and when he cleans, do we want to keep dumping dirt back with what God cleans? It is time for us to take seriously holiness. I mean, I don't mean that in a legal trip. I mean that in a sense of serious to be holy unto him, not just from other things. When you're holy unto him, you'll find other. The from works easy. So this is what's on the outside of the camp. Outside of the camp, by the way, fruitlessness. Outside of the camp, allegiances to other gods. Outside of the camp, your enemies. Outside of the camp, refuse. Poop. But let me tell you what's on the inside of the camp. Verse 15. If a slave runs away and he comes to you, you don't return him. That slave is now free. You know what's actually inside the camp? Free slaves. Though we were once slaves of sin, we are free now and God is not returning us to our old, horrible despot. We are free. We are free. Verse 17, there are no ritual harlots there, no perverted ones, no wages of a harlot, no prices of a dog, and no interest is charged. You can charge it to those outside the camp. You just can't charge it to those inside. So here's the point. When... I'm not even, first I could say, does, when the world thinks of church, they're going to think of it as irrelevant, weird, or whatever. Here's the question. How many Christians feel that way? How many Christians are pop- propagating that out there? The last survey I saw said the majority of Christians in the UK do not attend fellowship regularly. The majority that claim to be a Christian will not set foot in a church regularly. When asked why, they said it's boring irrelevant and unnecessary. In other words, they ask, what's the point? Understand, church is not just a place where you just kind of gather with a couple Christians and eat pizza. Church is a place, by the way, where you actually say, here I am, Lord, use me, and you actually have a a group of suspects you can actually try the ministry on. They have to forgive you. They're Christians. And you're like, Lord, what do you want to do? Pray and teach me how to pray and teach me how to walk with you and teach me how to read your word. And like those kind of things happen. It's so great when we could do that together. Let me say it this way. And we're, look at, we're halfway there and we're almost on time. Follow me on this. Mary. Virgin. Um, forgive me for being bold, but let's just say it. Let's just lay it out simple so we don't have to go along with it. And she's pregnant by God. Which one of you are going to believe that? It doesn't matter how pure the girl has been. It doesn't matter how nice the girl has been. The bottom line is, you are pregnant with a promise of God. And what Mary does is brilliant, and don't miss this. It isn't like Mary has to go and try, I mean, she has to tell her mom and dad, so they'll kill her. She has to tell Joseph. Those are rough conversations. But Joseph, praise God, God intervenes. We don't read that God ever shows up, by the way, to her parents. Think that one through. So who in the neighborhood isn't talking? You know, by this point, it's probably made its way to the papers. You know, the Nazareth today, that kind of thing. But what Mary does is brilliant. Mary gets up, and do you remember? Do you remember where she goes? Where she goes? She goes to visit her relatives. Who listen, listen, listen? Who was more pregnant with the promise than she was? Did you get that? The only person that she knows she's going to find support and comfort in is a person who's also pregnant by a promise from God. 
So, I mean, imagine everywhere she goes, and you know what this is like. You're in love with Jesus, and you can walk around with your Bible and just loving Jesus, just singing my song, Lord, I lift your name. And, and then all of a sudden, people are looking, and they give you that eye roll, and oh, idiot, and all that kind of stuff. And after a while, okay, you're just kind of, man, you're tucking your Bible in. Maybe I'll get it as an app on my phone. It's a little more subtle. And after a while, people are still looking at you, so you kind of turn your swag more into, I'm just going to try to walk like everyone else. And then, I'm, okay, I'm going to keep my phone really close. Because what happens is you kind of feel this oppression everywhere you go, when you're supposed to be the light. And you're supposed to be the one that goes, what's wrong with you? What do you mean what's wrong with me? I'm full of joy. I mean, the day is awesome. Yours isn't. And I've got the problem. Can we figure that one through for a moment? And then what happens is you have that. And if the only person you have are a couple people that you, you know what's going to happen. You grab a pizza and you complain. I mean, your only praise song is, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And that's where you're going. And then you come into the house of the Lord and everything changes. Because here, what happens is you've got people pregnant with the promise of God. And it's different. And you look and go, oh yeah, but let me tell you what, my God's still on the throne. Psalm 73, Asaph says, I almost stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the strong get stronger, the oppressed get more oppressed. He goes, then, he goes, and I, when I thought about it, it overwhelmed me. And I'm like, what's the use? He goes, then I went into the, to the sanctuary of God and I saw their end. See, so you walk into a place like this, and what happens is at a place like this, you start going, oh, wait a minute, I need an eternal perspective on this. So I get all of this stuff. What difference does it make? What's the eternal perspective on this? And that's what's supposed to happen here. And there's the point of the camp. The camp is the place where we can come and be together and say, thank you, God, that I have eternity with you. And it starts right now. So listen, care, every human being is important. When we get to that point where we walk out and we start talking to each other, let every person be important. Consideration. We want to be considerate enough that we're going to be seriously committed. To consider it enough so that people know who they're dealing with here. Full on, that's just who you're going to get. And let the camp be the place that the rest of the world should look and go, how do I get in there? Because the best they've got is a club. Hey, you party to forget. You celebrate to remember. And I'm going to celebrate for eternity. Well, we're halfway there and it picks up. To our other side. So what are our three over here? Care. Consideration. And the camp. We care. Every human being is important. Consideration. Be full on and committed. The camp. That's the place to be. Y'all with me? You have, have you died yet? <laughs> okay, let's get to this side. Commitment. That's where we start, right? Do you remember your three words? Commitment, and then consistency, and then conclusion. Commitment. That's chapter 24, and this is the way it works. You ready? No wife bouncing. Wife bouncing. A guy divorces a wife, she goes marries someone else, he divorces her, he can't take her back. You don't just do this. Treat women like human beings. Do you realize that the Bible was the most liberating thing for women there was? Women had a say. They could actually vote. They could actually testify in court. They were the only Middle Eastern people that did so. You could look at care for a woman. Care enough that you never just send her out. She's not a piece of property. There's the idea. Verse 5, 
When you guys are in a vow, keep it. And keep it, but don't just take their stuff. If a guy pay, promises to pay you money, don't take their upper millstone. How is that? Then the guy can't even make his money. Let him pay you back. Kidnapping, capital offense. Leprosy, take care of it properly. And when a guy owes you money, don't go into his house to get it. There's no loan sharking here. Give him a chance to be honored enough to pay it properly. And when it's you, return your pledge properly. When you say it, do it. It's that simple. And if you pay your, your, your servants, your employees, and they pay a daily wage, pay them on the day then. Don't just say, I'll pay you later, because that's not the way it works. Be a person of your word. Listen, commitment means your word means something. And what if the world looked and saw the church? Would they see anything different here than they would elsewhere? Would they see a commitment in us that was so much more important? Well, you know where the commitment starts? With care, doesn't it? We start caring for each other, and we're so caring for each other that because we care for each other, we are considerate for each other. And as we are considerate for each other, there's a real camp. It's not just a bunch of individuals. This is a real community now. And as it's a community, we show real commitment there. And how do we show commitment? The same way. Every person's important, but so is our word. There's the idea. Verse 16, notice, by the way. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children. Children shall not be put to death for their fathers. Some of you should say hallelujah to that in a very big way. Perfectly all of us would to some degree. The point is, you will be responsible for yourself. Hey, there are some that teach a thing called a generational curse. Perhaps you've heard of this. And the idea is where God says, and you need to read the whole verse, but it tells us that he visits to the third and fourth generation those who hate him. Well, what happens the moment you say yes to him? You're not one of those who hate him. He also says he also visits with mercy to the, to the, to the thousandth generation. Here, there's a very different story. The idea of it's simple. The moment I came to Christ, I am a new creation. Here's the good and the bad of it. The good is that if you come from a rough family tree and it looks more like a nasty branch or a scraggly bush, Jesus understands you should follow his family lineage a little bit. Prostitutes, people that were molested. There's like all kinds of crazy stuff in there. It didn't, didn't scare him. But the moment you came to Christ, you became a new creation. You need to know that. Here's the other side of it. The flip side is this. If your parents love Jesus, that doesn't mean you will. If you're convinced that the people around you are going to are completely secure in heaven, God is not into group reservations because he loves you individually. Remember that care, every person is important? So are you. And he loves you. He loves you and he calls his sheep by name, not by group, not by color, but not by nationality, not by location, but by name. He doesn't just go, all right, all the bobs over this way. This is Sarah. Lorraine. Woodstock, Lisa, Juan. He's serious about that. And we should be too. Finally, in the rest of the chapter, by the way, 17 through 22, he says you care for the poor. Just look at the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. You take care of them. You go through your field once. Everything that's left over, let the poor get it. Don't go back and get more. Beat your olive trees once. Gather your grapes once. And then let everyone else come and get it. You're familiar with the fact, by the way, a couple things. One, this is the story of Ruth in preparation, right? That's why she could go into a field and find Boaz. You're also aware of the fact, perhaps, in the Gospel of Mark, 
that Jesus was walking with his disciples and they were rubbing grain with their hands on a Sabbath and they said that was working? Well, that's because they were pulling from this particular text. Does that make sense? So, care, consideration, camp, commitment. Two more to go. Consistency. We can't be committed if we can't be consistent. True? So this is the way it looks. First of all, we are consistent with our judgments. If a guy's guilty, he's guilty. He's going to be beaten for it. It tells us, by the way, you can only beat him 40 blows at most. The Jews went and said, we'll show mercy, we'll do 40 blows minus one. Perhaps you're familiar that Paul lists that, by the way, with 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, is the, one of the things that validates his ministry, is how many times he was beaten that way, but never turned his back on Jesus. It comes from this. Perhaps you're familiar with Jesus pulling this idea of a man who sees a speck in another man's eye, but is a plank in his own. And the idea is simple. We are consistent with our judgments. That's the way that works. I am committed with my word, and if I'm committed with my word, I need to be consistent with my judgments. If I'm not, I can look like I'm committed with my word when I'm not. I can just rephrase, and you know how that works. I can rephrase it or redefine it and tell you I'm doing something when I'm not anymore because I've decided to redefine it. Five through ten is elaborate marriage. And what that means is really simple. Elaborate marriage means that when your brother gets married and if he dies without having any children and you're the younger brother, you've got to marry the girl and have a son in his name. Now, if that were the case today, I could guarantee you I would be very careful on my brother's selection process. I'm like, you ain't marrying her, and if you are, you ain't dying. Now, you do have a choice, by the way. Notice this. God, I think this is almost humorous. Look at verse 9. Actually, verse 8. The elders of the city should have called him, and if, what if he stands firm and says, I don't want to take her? Which one of you ladies think, oh, that's awesome. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face. And answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And this name shall be called from that point on, the guy with his sandal removed and spit dripping from his face. How'd you like to be? Hey, Mr. Drippy Spit, Shoeless Joe. There's the idea. Now, you're aware of the fact because of this, and it's called the leveret marriage, that Jesus is called to the carpet in Matthew 22 by a liberal group of guys called Sadducees. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. It always winds up being this, by the way. It's like if you're going to play the liberal card, you really kind of have to do it by making up stories. And they're like, here's the story. Jesus, you really believe in the resurrection? We don't. So here we think we have you trumped with this particular fun story. Here it is. There was a girl and she got married to a guy that has a handful of brothers. Seven. And the guy died. So she married the second guy and they never had a kid either. So he died. Must have been her cooking. Third guy eats dinner. He dies. Fourth guy dies. Fifth guy. The whole family. Finally, she eats her own meal and dies too. So at the resurrection, who is she married to? She had them all. I love what Jesus says. He goes, you guys err because you don't even know the scriptures. Would any of you want to be said that? What would God to say? Do you know why you're so wrong? Because you don't even read your Bibles. If you read your Bibles, you wouldn't even be doing this. God's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And he says, interesting, he says, because in the resurrection, you can't be married to someone else. You're already married. You're married to God. So why in the world would you even play that way? Well, he knows how to shut up a crowd, doesn't he? 
back to our point in this. If I'm going to be consistent, I need to be consistent in regards to the area of my relationships. And I certainly need to be consistent in marriage. You're probably aware of the fact my wife and I have been married now over 25 years. Isn't that crazy? It's uh, seeming less crazy in the sense that the older I get, people, and I remember saying when we were married 20, people were like, how could you be married 20? Now they're like, wow, so you got married like at 30? Just kidding. Anyways. But notice how he pulls from that then in verses 11 through 16 when he says, you need to have proper weights. He goes, listen, oh, there is this one interesting thing. If a woman, listen, if two guys are in a fight and a woman comes over, God has to put this in scripture. It's almost unbelievable. That two guys are in a fight. A woman goes over and one of them's her husband. She takes the other guy and she grabs him in a place that no one should be grabbing somebody else. You cut off her hand. Now, what? Any of you, have any of you read those verses? I'm going, wow. Pastor's going to be teaching on that. That's going to be awesome. Then what's the point? The point is, she has, and you know, it sounds like, you know, in our particular culture, the woman sounds like such a hero. She's come to rescue her husband. Try that in a culture, by the way, where shame and honor are issue. Because you've humiliated your husband in front of him. It's less dishonoring for him to be beat up than it is for you to rescue him. And the idea of it, it's an unfair advantage is the idea of it, which is exactly where he goes for the rest of it. Differing weights and differing measures. The idea is simple. Let's say Juan and Ati are running a business. And when he buys something from you, he has a certain set of weights, so he gives you as little as possible. He's like, oh, no, no, this is, this is a pound of gold, but it's really a half a pound. But then when you're buying something from him, he has one that's two pounds, so you have to give him extra. Those are differing weights. You know what that is? Inconsistent measuring, right? And the way we do that is simple. We kind of make it sound like, well, I, it's really, for you it's a lie, for me it's a fib. Really? Let's have consistent weights in what we do. There's the idea. Because you realize the reason you would do that is to give yourself an unfair advantage. There's the idea. So listen, do you remember your three? Care. Remember? And the idea is we care for every human being consideration. And how do we do that? Fully committed and the camp. And why the camp? Because that should be the place to be, right? Because we have community now. Now on our side, commitment. What are we committed to first? Our word. Consistency. What are we consistent in? Our judgments. They have a solid standard. And finally, our conclusion. Would you believe we've gotten that far? Are you ready to explode? Are your brains utter jello? We've already read the last verses. Look at what it says. Verses one through four. When you actually get into the land God's promising you, you're going to have fruit there. Offer it to God and say, by the way, remember how you promised me this land? Here I am in it. Look at the fruit that's being born. And by the way, God promised us London. And I can say the same. I look and I go, God, I just look. And I know you promised us this. And I'm standing on that promise. And I'm trusting you on that promise. And I'm watching fruit. And I'm thankful. And I'm saying, God, this is all yours. This is all yours. And it's just, you keep your word. That's what you do. Verses 5 through 15 is what is called a pedashah. Could you say pedashah? Pedashah, by the way, in essence, what it means is declaration. By the way, throughout Scripture, Acts 7, Acts 22, Hebrews 11 are pedashahs. And the idea of it is you go through the history of Israel with a theme. When somebody's questioned about their Judaism, usually respond with reviewing the history of Israel with a theme. Stephen, if you're familiar, the first Christian martyr, if you will, if you don't want to debate John the Baptist on that, um, <clears throat> gives his defense in Acts chapter 7. His point is, you've always been stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Why should it surprise me that you would be today? But thematically, that's always been the case. 
Paul will do the same thing in Acts 22. The theme, of course, in Hebrews 11 is faith, but it's still a parasha. And that's what they do here. In other words, what happens is he reviews the history. Our father was a Syrian and he left and you took care of him. You promised the Egyptians mistreated us. We cried out to God. The Lord brought us out of Egypt. He brought us into this place and he promised that he would give us the first fruits of the land. And look, here we are now. In other words, I'm experiencing the promise you promised me. That's the way this works. And that takes us to our last verses. So hear me on this last portion. We are committed to our word. And why we are committed to our word is because God gives us the power to follow through. He says, you'd be, there's no sin in not committing, unless it's a relationship. Relationships we should commit. God never has that live together, that's cool thing, see what happens. We commit. We are committed people. People don't get hurt when we commit. Nobody gets hurt from commitment unless you're committed to hurting them. We commit to our word. People don't get hurt for that. And you know why we commit? Because we care. We care for every human being. And we care enough to be considered about them, not just about ourselves. And therefore, we create a community, a camp where that's the case. This becomes our new society. And as it becomes our new society, we keep our word because we commit to it. And as we commit to it, we are consistent in it in the way that we judge things. And what we do at the end of it all is we conclude this. The reason for all of this is that God is faithful. Because God is faithful and he's fulfilled his promise, I can stand on that promise and say, thank you, Lord. You made me a special person. And the reason you made me a special person was because you poured forth your love on me. You you were the one who chose the curse over me in the sense that you chose the curse so that you could have me, not just temporarily, but permanently. And because of that, I want to live that way in obedience. And because you call me to that, that's what you're calling this church to be a church of people who obey Christ. Now, as we go to prayer and we are spot on time, would you believe that? I I don't even know. That's that's an act of God, some of you. I I think we're going to look back and go, remember that one time? Where are you at today with Jesus? First and foremost, he chose to be the cursed and die on the cross so that our curse could be paid for so we don't have to stand before God cursed. But the choice is ours to receive that gift. Have you received that gift? If you have received that gift, let me say this is what God wants to do with you now. Develop care. And as he develops care, he'll develop consideration. And as he develops consideration, well, you know what will happen next. He'll create a community, a camp out of that. People where that becomes the new social norm. Not that stuff out there. Don't look to the world and say, that's the way we're supposed to be. This should be very, very different. And as that is the case, we start moving forward and we say, well, then I want to commit. I want to commit to loving people and being a man of my word now. If I say it, let it be done. Amen, amen. And then with that, make me consistent. I want to be consistent in that. A man that you just know, look at, expect me to love my wife, expect me to love my children, and expect me to love you. Expect me to love the word of God. Never expect me to change it. And expect me to love God in such a way that it should challenge you and challenge me. Expect that. And if I start weaning on that, nail me on it. Because I want to be consistent. And let me conclude. Because my God is. And I want to become like him. And if I'm going to become like him, I'm going to care. And I'm going to be considerate. And I'm going to create a society. I'm going to be part of a society that does that. And I'm going to be a man of my word and commitment. I'm going to be consistent in it. And I'm going to just, because I just want to be like him. So as we go to prayer, and then one last C, 
communion today. We're going to go to the table of the Lord. Now listen closely. It tells us that when we eat or drink of those, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God wanted the gospel preached in church. It's a shame how little it is. Not in ours. I'm say, but I'm not like we're better. But the point is God wants us all to proclaim the gospel. You don't take of that because it's something a church does. You partake of it because what we're saying is, I know you paid the price for me with this bread, and I know that you are committed in love to me with this cup. That's what we're doing here. So as we go to prayer, and then we'll have communion, let me ask you, have you accepted the gift of Jesus? If not, I'm going to give you that choice. And if you have, are you willing to walk with me now and add to your faith virtue? Does that sound familiar? And what you realize is that's what Peter was speaking of when he was telling us that we were to add to that. And for each of those things, and how does it end? With brotherly love and then with love. Because that's how this whole thing ends. Is if we're going to become like God, if we're going to become like Jesus, we're going to love each other the way we should. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for these beautiful chapters and for doing something ridiculous here. You're a God of miracles. You've parted the Red Sea. You've made the sun stand still in the Valley of Ajalon. And you got us through six chapters, not because what we want to do is run through them, but because we really want to get the, the, the heartbeat of them. And in that, Lord, I pray you would lead us. Make us people, Lord, today who care. But care about every individual, not just people like us, not just people that, um, that we feel we get along with the best, but genuinely with people, Lord, that that would challenge us. You tell us, Lord, if any way possible that we are to live at peace with every person. We recognize there will be those who declare war on you, and Lord, they are not to be our friends. They're outside the camp. We're to be careful, but we're to care enough to want to see them come to know you. And may we care enough about each person to be considerate of them and theirs. And in being considerate, that we would create a society, a camp that's proper for that, where we can encourage each other to that because our flesh isn't going to stand up and applaud that. And with that, Lord, make us people who are committed, committed to keeping our word and consistent in our word that our definitions are the same inside and outside, no differing weights, nothing to gain some advantage. You are the one who does that. And with that, Lord, finally, in conclusion, may we become like you as your special people called for purpose to shine light in the darkness, to declare your praises. We've called us out of the darkness into your glorious grace. Oh, God, today, please make us such people obedient to you in faith. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, and today you know you need to, it's just a choice away. He's died on the cross to pay. He's risen from the dead to offer you new life, to be a new creation. And he asks, will you accept me as your Lord, Savior, and payment? If you're willing to receive him as that today, he's willing to make you that new creation and wash you perfectly clean and make you brand new. And If so, here's a prayer I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree with these words, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, oh, I agree. Let those words be my words now. So be it in my life. Here's the prayer. God, like every human being, I'm a sinner. And sin is guilt that must be punished. But you so love me that you sent your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross so that all of my guilt could be properly punished without me having to be punished in it. 
And as he died on the cross, my price was paid in full. And as he rose from the grave, just like your scripture promised, he offers me new life. So I say yes. If you want to make me innocent, wash me clean, declare me so, I'm going to say yes. I say yes. Please, make me innocent. Pay my bill. Make me that new creation and let me follow you. I declare Jesus is my Savior, my Lord, my payment now in his name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.